views expressed in our episode are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Catfish Cops. Um, we are coming back for a second week with uh, Amber Lee, who uh, is a survivor of human trafficking and who educated us all last week. And so thank you for coming back, Amber. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. Yeah. So recapping just last week, you, um, you know, told our listeners about your situation and, um, and all of that. And so one, I just want to say thank you for being so brave to do that. I don't have the perspective from where you sit to, to know. I'm assuming that this helps. I know. And sometimes when there's a crisis in life and then you can overcome a crisis and, and you, the more you talk about it, maybe not so much the easier it gets, but in some ways that can be a little bit therapeutic, I would assume. And so Again, I know from our listeners' perspective, from my perspective, I'm super grateful to have you share those with us, um, as difficult as that may be. And so this week, I want to kind of, I want to step forward. I want you to kind of tell our listeners, like, all right, you said you had this sort of epiphany. You were, you had a conversation with somebody in law enforcement, <clears throat> kind of change your perspective. And so, let's talk about what pushed you to where you are today, and and we'll go yeah. from there. Yeah. Last week was, that was a lot of hard information. Your, your platform is very, very important to me. It is, it helps me turn a tragedy into purpose in an arena where I think all of us can agree. I can imagine the people who listen to your podcast, we, we can all agree that this is a very important topic. Absolutely. So yes, had a, had a conversation with a law enforcement officer. This is my probation officer at the time. I think what it came down to was my affiliations with a very, very dangerous individual gang member, a history of criminal charges against other women and, and uh, injuries, lots and lots and lots of injuries. And I didn't have a job, you know, but I had everything I money wise, you know, car, rent, all of these things. I think she was smart enough to put it together basically just flat out was very, very direct. She, she, she didn't coddle around the situation, just said it. And, and I, I trusted her in that moment because she was the first law enforcement officer that was like, this is what it is. This is how I see it. And I, I was seen in a different arena as opposed to being just a criminal. So I, I told her, I told her and, and then that, that really hard portion of my life started. So I didn't end up going all the way to trial and then was continuing to use to try to deal with with what I was going through because there wasn't a facility for me. I was I was too acute for just a standard substance abuse facility. I was dealing with extreme complex post traumatic stress disorder, and I wasn't 
eligible for just a primary mental health facility because I had a substance abuse issue on top of it. So there, and co-ed that wouldn't have worked for me. I couldn't be around men after that for many years, actually. Right. I did what I, what I knew would work for me. And that was incarceration. I had done it again and ended up in the Utah state prison. And I thought I was going to be like, so happy they just, you know, healing and, and like, yeah. you can even get a TV there. I thought it was gonna be great. It was not great. I do not recommend prison for anybody. And especially don't recommend it for women that have been trafficked and that struggle with PTSD. There was a lot of inappropriate things that were happening inside the prison. And I really imploded on myself in there. Your previous, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to just clarify your, your last week when you were talking about you had figured things out and incarceration was sort of your safe place and Mm -hmm. you kind of embraced it. So that I'm assuming was a situation more like a County facility versus a state. Okay. So just to, you know, for the listeners to understand the differences between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately in the County jail, it wasn't ever long-term. The longest I could ever get to be at my staycation was probably six months, but I I ended up in in the prison and it was bad. You know, it was bad. Witnessed exploitation of women, lots and lots of drugs. It, it was, it was the wild, wild West. And that was not good for me. So I imploded and found this like dissociative state. I refused to use drugs while I was in there because I knew what that, what that would get me to with these shady correctional officers that I would be, I would be stuck. So I'd walk around the prison with headphones that were broken, plugged into my pocket. So nobody would talk to me (laughs) and it, it worked for the most part. I, I always loved and prayed for lockdowns. That was my favorite time when I was, (laughs) incarcerated anytime the you know the males had riots we're looking at a week of just bliss for me i i loved it because it was safe so the facility the state prison you were in had both obviously a female side and a male side but all on the same compound generally on the same compound so um any of their behavior directly affected what was happening on our unit so Um, that's different well for here in texas it's completely separate. Like the, the women's prison state prison, you know, is a completely separate compound nowhere near a male prison and, and vice versa. So that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting concept right there. We we shared the same perimeter. We shared the same kitchen. Yeah. We made meals for the, the male side. Wow. So so yeah, it, it did directly affect us and they're, they're, they're rowdy. The, on the women's side was drastically different than what was happening on the men's side, but it did, it did affect us. And, and we, I, we got locked down all the time for, I mean, yeah, I, I remember one incident. I, and I only say this because it's shocking and like prison ingenuity, right? We got locked down for, I don't know, it was a couple of weeks because the males had made bombs out wow. of batteries and powdered creamer. Some right. GI Joe yeah. stuff going on right yeah. there, MacGyver, huh? Yeah, it's it, there. You gotta know if you just use some of that intelligence for something else, it would be fantastic. Oh, but, but yeah, so dude, I, um, I'm again. I'm sorry to cut you off. Were you housed by yourself in a in a pod by yourself, like, uh, or did you ever cellie or shared cell? Okay, yeah. yeah, and I was lucky enough that 
I was placed with individuals that, you know, weren't gang affiliated. Obviously they're, they're not wonderful individuals, but not all of them had really, really horrible monster stories. They, most of them were a situation with drugs, you know, that led to a series of events that long-term use had led them to prison. But I had always made a very, very stark rule that, that I was willing to fight over that no drugs were allowed in the cell because I was afraid I was going to use them. Yeah. And I, I knew that if some of these questionable uh, individuals that were working out there that were making a lot of money off of uh, drug trafficking, if they knew that I was participating in that, that I wouldn't be able to get out of that. And I just desperately wanted to get out of prison because there are indeterminate sentences out there. Wow. So, wow. you know, serving a zero to five, if you, you know, initially get sentenced to, let's say, 12 months and you mess up while you're in there or catch a new charge while you're in there, then they can hold you and keep extending your sentence. So wow. I was devastated and I wanted to get out of there because my safe incarceration place was not <laughs> you learned, County. Yeah. I learned very quickly that it was a, a drastic uh, change from what you thought was a comfort. So this is a perspective, honestly, Amber, that I know we've never talked about it because I have made efforts in the past unsuccessfully to interview a couple of the guys that I sent to prison, federal prison, and who are still in federal custody, because I thought that that their perspective of of that side of things would be interesting. I think our listeners, like even the few things that you've shared, you know, like I, I don't, you know, just the perspective of, of how terrible it really is, that people need to know that. <laughs> you don't, that's not a place you want to go because of X, Y, and Z. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it uh, definitely wasn't what I what I thought it was. So spending, you know, I I ended up getting a couple of years, but um, had some opportunities for some time cuts. So I ended up doing about sixteen months in there, and that was sixteen months of me in a in a state of like anger and rage and resentment and revenge. You know, just all day, every day, thinking about how I was going to get out and just take it all down. You know, even the correctional officers inside the, I was determined to change the game in Utah. And so when I, when I got out of prison, I went directly. So this is, I'd been in there for 16 months, did a treatment program inside prison. I don't recommend it. Um, Then I got, did treatment when I got out and that was about a year. So it was you know, I'm, I'm now in what they would consider longer term recovery because I hadn't used for a couple of years. But I immediately was trying to figure out how to best weaponize myself in this arena, being a convicted felon. Right. And I quickly understood that computer science was going to be my greatest weapon that could keep me safe, that I could participate in in helping law enforcement and some of these nonprofits figure some of this stuff out. And so that's what I did. I ended up going to school for computer science, ethical hacking and programming. But I did make it a point to do my healing, focus on my healing, focus on my education, and then get into this fight. So vetting nonprofits, I'm I'm not a big fan of just rescue nonprofits mm-hmm. if they aren't doing the follow-up for the yeah. aftercare, because that quite literally is the hardest part. And re it's like re-trafficking trafficking victims, right? Just perpetually exploiting them on television shows, like all of those things, right? So I 
I was very loud and um, a bit aggressive with some of these nonprofits and told them about themselves, found some really great ones that I still enjoy working with and then helping with law enforcement. So I had to establish somewhat of a track record with law enforcement that they could trust me and that I could trust them. But that relationship has grown into something very very beautiful. I love uh, Utah law enforcement and I will work with them and help them in any way possible. I, even today, I still get, you know, phone calls like, Hey, we think we have a victim here and we're wondering if you want, if you can talk to her. And of course, absolutely. 100% and offering exit strategies for law enforcement. When we're talking about Utah survivors, we definitely want to get them out of the state in which they were trafficked. So that, that course that I'm on now is I now work for one of these nonprofits and, you know, have started my own, my own company and it's, you know, advising and there's, there's a lot of things I have my hands in. Most of it is around survivor advocacy, aftercare, humanitarian efforts and education, both for law enforcement and the public. That's Um, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. So you just to, follow back on just what you just said, which I think will be of great importance. What, and I, I put you on the spot with this, so don't feel pressured if you, if there's nothing you can toss out, but I think it would be beneficial because we do have a large law enforcement component that listens to our podcast. What do you, what do you think are some common tips or thoughts that you could toss out to the law enforcement listeners that could help them do their jobs better when it comes to this specific situation. If they encounter someone who even potentially is being trafficked, what are some things that you think you could toss out that would benefit them? So, I mean, obviously you have, you have a, a big group of law enforcement and everyone has different regulations within their department. If they are unable to establish a trusting relationship with who they believe to be a victim, then bring in advocacy outside of your department, someone else that can take the, the liability of those things. I would say your typical trafficking survivor is going to have a history of criminal charges, both with drugs and, and solicitation. I know we've, we've changed some of the, the verbiage, but affiliations with gangs. The adult survivors are going to be so extremely difficult to work with because they're not going to tell you anything unless they trust you. But some of these, these nonprofits that your departments work with, they might be able to. Something that works really great with some of that really gritty high crime area trafficking where you know what she's doing out there. You can tell you've ran into her, you know, a hundred times. She's she's not very easy to work with, right? There may be some severe mental health issues. And I think street outreach and harm reduction works really well in trying to establish relationships with those people because there's it's probably been 20 years of distrust of law right. enforcement but if you can get there and provide a, you know have a team providing wound care or hygiene or even needle exchange or narcan naloxone this is like like a peace offering like hey we see you we're not here to like lock you up or you know any of those things we just want to know what your needs are you right. know and sometimes that takes a year to establish that relationship where they're trusting enough to tell you what's going on. Because for a very long time, I mean, there was, there was a few times where we've seen victims be rescued and they go back, they go back after a rescue. And it's because they don't feel safe where they're at with, with aftercare or we've over promised them things that we can't deliver. Right. 
you know, like we'll get you out. We'll place you in a different area. We'll, you know, we'll make sure your kids are okay. Making sure we're not making promises that we can't keep, but then they go back and they're even in more trouble, but this could happen several times. And so they, they don't want to come out. So let's say you do a year of outreach or working with a nonprofit that does, you know, street level outreach. And then finally they're like, okay, I can trust the advocate or the street level outreach and they will trust whoever the advocate trusts. Right. Right. And have a good solid plan to, to get them out. That's really good. That's really, really good advice. Something just popped in my head and I'm just wondering if you could either like confirm or dispel maybe what I think is a common belief in, at least in the law enforcement side. And again, I come into this, even though I have plenty of years of experience, I come at this from sort of an ignorance position. And I know that there's a lot of people, at least in my area with probably the same sort of ignorance and realizing that things that happen in your area in Utah could be very different how it happens here. But there's a common belief that when you as a trafficking victim are in a specific location, part of town or, you know, the known area, the hotel district, whatever it may be, that your trafficker is within eyesight of seeing you all the time. Is that, is that legit? Is that not so legit? Yeah. I think when you're in really, really high crime areas where we're talking about extreme poverty lots of gang affiliation, lots of drug use. They look and appear homeless, right? right. Yes. I think they could be within eyesight, but even my trafficker, I, I wasn't trafficked to that population. Um, my trafficker monitored me by technology. Okay. So tracking devices, cameras, having access to my phone, uh, many different, many different aspects, but yes, he always had eyes on me. But with whether he's within sight is a different story. That's why we really, really encourage like nonprofits to do some of the street level outreach and not just for trafficking who they suspect for trafficking everyone in that area. Right. Even the males and even asking the, the guy on the block that like owns the block. Right. Hey, what do you what do your girls need? Or, you know, trying to establish some of these relationships and then be able to give that information to trusted law enforcement contact. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I saw something as I was kind of just doing a little bit of research for this and, you know, just to, you know, learn more about it, because that's what it's all about is figuring it out and and, uh, you know, getting your hands dirty and your feet in the fire to, to get this done. But the simple things, like like you said, what officers could do to build a trust with somebody they encounter a hundred times or what they know is going on, but they get very frustrated because they they see the criminal history, they see the drug use. And mm-hmm. and so, and, and I'm not defending, I don't want this to come across in the wrong way, but it you almost get from our side of the house, we almost get desensitized to the, to the storyline and to this and to that, um, to the returning, like you mentioned, you know, this person was pulled out, but the aftercare wasn't great. So they're back with the same trafficker and those, those kind of things. But it really, it really resonated to, to think about it from the simple things. Maybe they need a toothbrush. Maybe they need, you know, feminine products. Maybe they need this, you know, who, who knows what that may be, but that tiny, small, little offer might begin to bridge the gap between someone with trust and no trust. So yeah, that was, that's really, really significant. 
And I don't really think our law enforcement officers have the time to do that, right? right. Nor right. The, the wherewithal, or sometimes it may not even be appropriate, right? They may right. be co-defendants in a case that they're working. That's why we really want to support some of these NGOs in, in doing that. If you can trust an NGO and you guys work well together, I mean, we don't want to keep convicting the same di- or different guy on the block right. over and over and over. But if we can get valuable information what's happening with victims, we always be able to pick up the drug dealer on the block. You can, you can pop him a thousand times, but if we're talking about victims or something a little bit more organized, that information is going to need to, it will trickle in slowly. And we see a lot of great results with street level outreach teams. This is something that we do every week and we have been able to get survivors out. And then there's times where Adults first, they don't want to get out. Right. They don't want to get out. They've accepted their fate. They know they're going to die out there, but they love giving us information and they hate seeing young women out there. So if we're looking for a young 14 year old or, you know, they will absolutely give us that information because they trust us and we're not, and we're not there to, to judge them about their drug use or try to convince them to leave the trafficking situation. If you want to leave, we will help you. Right. And we'll have a great plan, but no woman that no woman wants to see a young girl out there. And we can usually pluck them out pretty quick because those women that we've established these relationships with call us as soon as a new young girl hits up that area. They're, well, that, I mean, that's super encouraging to, to know that. And, and it makes sense. I mean, clearly mm-hmm. like they've, they've lived that life or they've, like you said, they've accepted what their fate may be. And, and so they know the troubles and tribulations that they're going to go through. And so, I mean, it's encouraging at least, you know, just because someone's in a situation where they may do bad things doesn't mean they're a bad person. And that's yeah. hard for people to kind of figure out, I guess, from our side, we get to be a little stubborn and pigheaded sometimes on the law enforcement side of things. One thing we didn't really talk about, and even though you've, you've sort of hinted around with the NGO stuff is expense. Like it's a, it's a significant cost, right? To, to run these outreach programs, to run these aftercare programs. Let's, let's talk about that for a couple of minutes. So a typical outreach bag will come with like travel size, hygiene items, shampoo. A lot of what we try to gear some of these bags for are women that are being trafficked or trafficking themselves. So they'll come with condoms, baby wipes, lube, things, things that their traffickers aren't going to provide for them to try to, we try to keep them safe. Mobile HIV testing, uh, in the winter, it's socks and, you know, hoodies and yoga pants and things like this. But we also want to address some of the healthcare stuff. So we definitely don't want them picking up used needles. We don't want them to even drop their used needles. So we do have, you know, access to a clean needle exchange where we give them a sharps container and they, we transfer those things, you know, back and forth. Narcan, and wound care we get access to you know clinics if they've gotten injured and they don't want to go to a hospital they don't want they're not ready to report some of these things yet there's there's a vast amount but i would say most of these bags typically you're looking at about 30 dollars a bag i know some outreach teams hand out over 200 of these bags a, a night and about 50 of them are going to people that are being trafficked, but you don't want to put yourself out there that you're just there for trafficking. Like you want to give some of these other generic bags to even the male homeless population out there. You, sure. you don't want to 
you don't want to just but but that's just that's just for outreach now we're if we're talking about an exit depending on where they're going we've got to do the mobile detox and transportation and that if they need security and and that you're you're looking at thousands, right? But then the aftercare starts. And we like to work in collaboration with lots of different NGOs and see what kind of insurance we can utilize for some of this expense. But you're looking at a year to two years. And depending on where they land and what kind of uh, insurance reimbursement we're looking at, you're looking at a lot of money. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, $50,000. $50, wow. Um, but the, the, the ripple effect from that is you have a healthy, stable, supported victim who may or may not want to testify. Uh, but usually when you get a survivor out and they're feeling healthy and strong, they are determined to do something about it, whether it's to provide information, get other you know women or children out or a prosecution. So the ripple effect from just one survivor is is vast and yeah. they usually have a lot of energy to do these things. I, the majority of the time. Yeah. You know, from someone who has worked with different NGOs myself over the course of my career, I, I think what you hit on is vitally important because, you know, you're talking 30 bucks a bag, 200 a night, that's what, like six grand, right? And multiply that over the course of however many days a month that those are being, that, that's a significant cost in itself far exceeding anything that any local municipality would ever even consider. It's not a, it's not a line item on the budget, so it's not something that's going to happen. So we're not going to arrest our way out of this situation as much as uh, some in law enforcement believe you can do. It's not going to happen. Uh, we have to approach this uh, from a different perspective. We have to tackle this with help. We have to embrace that yeah. help. And, you know, we need to do our due diligence because I think you mentioned in the first uh, episode last week that, you know, you had to do some vetting yourself. You found some that were doing things the right way, some who weren't, and you very kindly and put them in their place. <laughs> and, and so that's the wake up that people need to hear. That's the wake up that people need to understand. And so one other aspect I know, let's talk about the aftercare for just a second, because I think that one, I know the expense, I know the difficulty of being able to get somebody in that situation, but how important is it to get someone into that aftercare program outside of their area of influence, maybe outside of their normal, like where they are being trafficked. What's the importance behind that? Yeah. So anytime we have a, a trauma response for a survivor, which is multiple times a day, I would say, I'm going to speak for myself. Sleeping is still incredibly difficult for me. Nightmares are incredibly difficult for me. I don't like nighttime, but anytime there's a, there's a trigger. So it could be the smell um, it could be a voice. It could be a movie, a song, that fight or flight response happens. This is in, I do not have control over what's happening in my body. Even today, I logically in my mind, I know I'm safe. And what's happening to me is a somatic response, but hands are shaking. Mouth is dry. My body wants to run. My body wants to run. We definitely want to get them out of an area in which when they run, they're going to go back to their coping mechanism, whatever, whatever that may be. Or if they run, they find themselves in a situation where it just perpetuates that PTSD response. And in some aspects, run back to their trafficker, right? Because right. their trafficker will provide them with whatever it is 
the housing, even if they have to take some abuse. But we definitely want to get them also out of an area in which just running to the gas station, any gas station, right? right. Let's say you're 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 trafficked in Utah. You you want to get them out of Utah and and those surrounding states. Survivors are very resourceful, and especially when it comes to selling themselves to get what they need that is it that is really easy to do and access to that is all you have to do is stand on the side of the road for long enough as a woman in within 10 minutes you're going to have some sort of roll up on you so we want to get them into secluded areas with children where we want to start talking about secure facilities semi-secure facilities but that's not helpful locking them up that's that's not going to be helpful so out in the middle of nowhere in a state in which they are not familiar with they don't know how the trafficking takes place in that arena so when they do want to run they have to run back to either staff or find a way to work work through some of that stuff but some of these ptsd responses are just so intense we're talking panic attacks and you know to the point where you're passing out this is and having no control over it it is It is like a separation between mind and body. There's bringing those back together. I mean, you're talking about the the amount of trauma it took to rip them apart. You're looking at equal amounts of work to try to put it back together, but consistently dealing with some sort of divide quite literally and maybe forever. Yeah. So these coping skills have these neural pathways are going to take time to build and, and for people to realize that they are safe and there are ways to, you know, work through the trauma response and understand that it's going to pass and that you're not actually dying. It's just your body responding to, right. To what it's been through. So it's, it's, it's a tricky, tricky situation, especially yeah. considering private insurance, you're looking at 45 days max for residential treatment. Right. That is not even really enough to get a survivor even fully detoxed right, in some right. case. You know, there's so many things I want I, I get so frustrated with, you know, so many things. There's there's components of this that we haven't even discussed is which a lot of a lot of ladies in this situation, you mentioned it just like as you're talking about like getting them into a safe situation, but a lot of them have kids and so you want to that's a whole nother component to think about and the expense and just all of the things, I guess, how do, you know, the one thing you just said just a minute or two ago was like, look, you know, these ladies are resourceful. They know how to do the necessary things to get them in from point A to point B, if it's a, whatever it is. And so for what you said about a woman could go stand on a street corner for 10 minutes and somebody somewhere will come up and exploit that and turn that into the perpetual problem of trafficking. Like how do we remove Dr. Michael Burke? We did an interview with him on our podcast and he's a, he is a super smart guy and I'm going to probably butcher what I'm about to say. I'm going to, cause I'm going to try to rephrase what he said, but the, the takeaway I took from him is, and we were specifically talking about children, uh, but this applies, I think with adults as well, which is how do we remove the prey from the predator, the predator being the trafficker, also the predator being the John that seeks the traffic victim. How do we remove them? How do we solve this? How do we fix this? You know, we can arrest plenty of people who partake, you know, but even that doesn't solve the problem, you know, and I don't know that we have an answer to that. It's, it's crazy. Like maybe public shaming of the John needs to happen. 
this is this is something that we think about all the time and I've tried to tackle it. I even went and worked for a primary mental health facility. It was co-ed that specialized in sex addiction just to try to not be so narrow minded about my experience and turning every situation into like that's an evil monster right it just felt like I was lacking some of my humanness so I I went and worked for this place and what I what I understood is that there's a lot of sex addiction out there there's a lot of really really dark evil pornography and uh, from a from a scientific standpoint we're talking about some of this pornography we're peaking at dopamine levels as high as cocaine right so, I mean, we're, we're talking about an extreme addiction and and that tolerance level growing with a pornography addiction, right? Like what once was satisfying my addiction now doesn't right. and higher and higher and higher. The production of pornography, the how we've normalized even sexualization of children and women and and all all genders and things it's getting really really intense and it's because they're not meeting the need of that addiction but a lot of people that have hurt you know women children men have had some sort of experience in themselves at a young age yeah yeah we see we definitely see that correlation there's there's without a doubt statistics i guess behind it and and we are seeing this umbrella sort of widen a little bit and really factor in causation to to what's leading to some of the behaviors we see manifest into adult offenders and whatnot and you know like i said the the correlation is there and being made with you know family trauma just internal family violence in general mental physical emotional abuse and the you know, obviously addictions that people have, alcohol and drugs, which leads to more of the violence and more of the mental aspect of things, which then translates to cause and effect. You know, one thing happens and another and another goes. But man, there's just so much. It's as I'm nearing the end of my career here in a couple of years, which may mean I end my law enforcement career, but I certainly by no means will be out of the game because mm-hmm. It's just ingrained in who I am now. And, and so whatever that role will be, I want to be a good steward of that because it's important. And I want everybody to feel as important <laughs> that it should be as important to them as it is to me, which is not always the case. So let's kind of, let's talk about this. What about our listeners? What if I have a listener somewhere and I mentioned to you before I started the recording, you know, the reach, the, the reach that we have as a tiny little goofball guys doing podcasts, we reach more places in the world than I can even pronounce or know where they are. I have to look them up on a map sometimes because I have no idea where some of these places are. One comes to mind is we have a listener or a group of listeners in Cambodia who are fighting this same fight that you're fighting in Utah. They're advocates to pull uh, trafficking victims out of that situation. And so what is it you can tell our listeners, somebody that's sitting there listening going, dang, I want to help. What can I do? Yeah. And this is generally my response. Um, once we, once you open, and as, as you know, working in this arena, once you open the door to what's actually happening to human trafficking, it is not a door you'll ever be able to shut again. It is quite literally something that like, you can't go to sleep at night 
knowing that it's happening in your neighborhood and not doing anything. So if you are prepared to do something about this, there, there are many things you can do, even if it's providing financial assistance or, you know, sponsorships or um, you want to help with creation of outreach bags or there's, there's many, many things you can do. Financial support is what we desperately need. We have now created the fundamentals and are really close to launching Utah's first survivor facility for adult women. Congratulations. I know we're really excited about it. Utah is dramatically behind the curve and that could be for many different reasons, but this has been a huge expense and it's not, this is not something where we've spared an expense. We want, you know, these women to be comfortable and we want the clinical and medical to be top tier and we want to be very, very successful in this. So financial support is always needed. This is something that it's constant battle every week. It's about funding. It's about, you know, grants. If, if you're a great grant writer, like if you're really successful in writing grants, please, please reach out to me because I mean, if you, if you have a skill set, then that could be used. If you're a medical professional, if you're a therapist, if any, any of these things, if you wanted to participate in mobile detox and you're a nurse, you know, you can help. If you wanted to provide mentoring advocacy or therapy sessions, uh, you could help. There's what, whatever it is that you're already good at, let's just use that. But if it's, if it's something where you're not close to Utah or, you know, it's a skill set that, or you don't want to be known, right. Financial support is going to be very, very important for us going into to 2023. We want to be able to provide long-term care for survivors and support even law enforcement in presenting a stable, supported, loved, and credible witness right if this is the route if this is the route that it's going but and that's that's really great information you know we we all know this because we are in this line of work and and it just can't be preached enough so what are some of the resources what are if somebody's got a skill set that they think could be beneficial to you or the organization you're helping and they want to reach out to you are you comfortable giving that information? Give throw an email address or whatever you want to out there so that our listeners yeah. can jot that down. Yeah. So the NGO that I work for is Exit Us. That's E X I T U S. Okay. We specialize in aftercare, advocacy, mentoring, long-term continuum of care. So whatever it is, survivors survivors need both for. Uh, even even for law enforcement. So that my email is amber.exitus at gmail. Some of my favorite rescue teams that understand aftercare and not further exploiting uh, victims is CERT out of California. That's S-E-R-T, CERT Rescue. Pastor Rudy runs that team and he is just phenomenal the man Uh is just a legend i absolutely adore him but they're very very successful in um, rescue or location of runaways so if we're trying to prevent exploitation or possible trafficking they are a great great organization to contact but if we're talking about aftercare advocacy therapy detox medical care exodus is is definitely going to be someone that can provide long-term is there a website for Exodus yep. that they could go yes. to and uh, see some re- see the needs and click on the link and the contact me kind of a thing? Yep, it's joinexodus.org. 
joinexodus.org. Fantastic. And if if we're if you're not if you want to just email me directly, you can also do that. But um, yeah, we have big big projects coming up in 2023. We're hopefully launching it in February. Hopefully, have our first survivor in there by February. But it's been a long time making. It's been almost a year of the loopholes having what having yeah. to jump through to create. This has been very difficult, but well worth it because it's being done right. We're not. We're not going to rush into anything because this absolutely has to be a solid foundation from the beginning. So we're thrilled. Such solid information. Um, I feel guilty for taking up so much of your time, Amber. I know what the listeners don't know because by the time they hear these episodes, the holidays are long gone. But we are literally like the holidays are right on us. Like literally when I reached out to you to say, hey, by any chance, you know, and you were just so accommodating. You were like, heck yeah, let's do this, you know? And, and I am very, very grateful for your time to do that, especially so close to Christmas. I really, really wish you and your family, the merriest of Christmases, the happiest of new years. I want this to just blow up and explode. I want my listener base to reach out to you. Give me the email address one more time. Amber.exitus at gmail. At gmail. Man, reach out if you have questions, if you can give financial support, if you think you can plug yourself in. I know that uh, she's in Utah, but I bet she's got resources all over the country. And so thank you again for telling us your story. Thank you for being so brave uh, to do that and just keep fighting the fight. Keep fighting the fight. Well, I'm with you. I am with you. And I just appreciate this platform so much because factual information is very, very important. And when I met you at that retreat, I, I'm just amazed because we're, we're just kind of in this fight together. So anytime I come across someone like you, I definitely want to do everything I can to help. Well, that, that means a lot. I, uh, I'm glad to consider you a friend now. It was tremendous to meet you in real life. It had a great impact on me, which just made me want to get you on here on the podcast to as quickly as I could, you know, work being what it is, it is what it is, but (laughs) Um, Thanks again for everything. Reach out if you have questions. Have a Merry Christmas, and we'll end it with that, all right? Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Catfish Cops podcast, brought to you by Brandon Poor and Tony Godwin. For additional information and available resources, please visit our website, www.catfishcops.com, and click on the resources link.